we okay? Are we good? I, I needed to see you guys, all right? And uh, glad to be with you this morning. We're in Luke chapter 7, and uh, as you're turning there in your copy of Scripture, we are uh, considering that last week in our uh, Meals with Jesus, our summer sermon series, uh, that last week that Christ uh, had a meal with a man whose name is Levi. He was a public tax collector, and Christ went and had a meal in his house. But this week, Jesus has a meal with a Pharisee. It's a Pharisee named Simon. And uh, so we're in Luke chapter 7. And throughout the entire Gospel of Luke, the issue is, who is this Jesus? What is the identity of Christ? And we have to remember that Luke, in chapter 1, has been asked by the most excellent Theophilus to give a report. Here's a man who wants to know who is Jesus, what has he done. He wants to see if it's going to impact his life and if he's going to come to faith. And so Luke writes, the Gospel of Luke, as well as Acts, that's his second letter, uh, to Theophilus to say, hey, here is an orderly account of who is this Jesus and his impact on others. And Luke is compiling stories with details that you wonder, why would he include this? Unless it's true. And so if you're here this morning, sometimes you wonder, you know, is the Bible true? Just read through these stories and just go, would I include that if I really wanted to present Christ? Would I include that detail unless it was true? And one of those details that you find striking throughout all of Luke's gospel is who gets it right about Jesus? You might be surprised when you find out who gets it right about who Christ is and who gets it wrong. Because many of us all come to church with spiritual assumptions. We have a spiritual assumption that if you were raised religious, well, then it must be easier for you to believe in Jesus. That those who were raised in the church stay with the church. Of course, those are the ones that have the, the most faith. And so Luke challenges that notion. Go back to Luke chapter 4. You're already in Luke 7. Just go backwards. Luke 4, 16. We're going to kind of work our way up to Luke 7. Sorry to mislead you. We are in Luke 7, but we're working our way up there, building a case on who gets it right about Jesus and the surprise. Look at Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And so he's in his hometown. If there's anyone that's going to believe in Jesus, it would be people that, that knew him, that saw what a, a godly young man he was that knew his parents, that, that could attest to that. And you know what? Luke just blows that right out of the water. Look with me here at verse 22. After Christ reads scripture, the crowd from Nazareth all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. While they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
prophets not welcome in his own home. They don't see it. They don't have eyes to see it. They're spiritually blind, and spiritually blind leads you to spiritual death. But another assumption that we have in our day is that if you're a religious leader, of course you're closest to Jesus. I just want to encourage you this morning, never trust a pastor, a rabbi, or a priest just because they're paid by the church. You got to listen to their words. You got to hear what they are saying. I don't care how spirit-filled they are. The spirit throughout the whole Bible never brings attention to himself, but always exalts Christ. And so how do you know if you're in a spirit-filled church is if Christ is being exalted? And look and let's see here how Luke consistently shows that the religious leaders are blind to Christ. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with what? Fury. And discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Instead of being filled with faith, they are filled with fury. Those that are supposed to get it right are the ones that have an opposite relationship to Jesus than Levi, who's a tax collector, who receives Jesus and welcomes him into his home, and the people that we meet in Luke chapter 7. So let's go over to Luke 7. And the first person we meet, we're not going to have time to read through this, but the first person he meets is a centurion. Look at verses 2 through 3. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. What we have here is a Gentile. And not just any Gentile, a Roman Gentile. Remember, they're living in occupied land. This is the enemy. And not just a Roman, but a military man. And not just a military man, but a centurion. Friends, if there is anybody that is not supposed to believe in Jesus, it's this guy. He's not supposed to believe in Jesus. He's supposed to kill the Messiah because that would overthrow the Roman rule. And yet, what does Christ say about this man? I don't think there's a better accolade in all of the Gospels, and it's reserved to a Roman military commander when Christ says, I marvel, not used ever again, I marvel at your faith. It really didn't matter. Whether Christ raises the dead, that's verses 11 through 17. Jesus raises a widow's son. And that news, it spreads in verse 17. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So Christ is not welcomed by the Pharisees, religious leaders. A Roman centurion has faith for him to heal and Christ marvels. He raises a dead person's son to identify him as the Messiah. He is also introduced, verses 18 through uh, 35, by John the Baptist, who is prepare the way of the Lord. He has a herald that's going before him to prepare the way of the who? Which is associating Jesus with who? The Old Testament's being fulfilled, Christ is saying, right? I am, 
I am having somebody identify me and shout from the rooftops, this is who I am. I'm raising the dead. I'm healing the sick. But look with me at verse 29. Chapter 7, 29. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Who gets it right? Tax collectors. Having been baptized by the baptism of John, but who gets it wrong? Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized. Those that you think are going to get it right. Whether it is in a minor key of John's repentance, or whether it is in the major key of Christ bringing life and raising people from the dead and healing people, they are deaf to the good news of Jesus Christ and who he is. And the irony here, as we get to our passage, verse 36 through the end, that those that are supposed to get it right get it wrong. Here is an immoral woman of all people who doesn't have pride but has humility. She's not hard-hearted, but she has genuine compassion. She's not clueless or opposed to Jesus, but she recognizes him and she shows him respect. This morning, we get to see that God is no respecter of persons. Acts 10.34. It's great news. So, he can take a Gentile occupying military commander and make him teach faith to Jews. He can take an immoral woman who crashes a party and teach salvation by grace to Jews. Let's hear God's word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Basic elementary math, the one with the extra zero, right? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, isn't that good when you just read God's word out loud and those phrases stick out to you? He turns to the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this, the identity of Jesus, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
God, we thank you for your written word. And uh, though our time uh, is short, our hearts are burning within us to feed us from your word. Exalt the Savior. Let us lift up Christ. May we be a spirit-filled church that doesn't draw attention to ourselves, uh, but draws attention to you. Uh, fill our vision. Be thou my vision this morning. We ask this for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. So our first point this morning is that because God is no respecter of persons, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Because God is no respecter of persons, Jesus is a friend of sinners. We meet two different people uh, in this story, and let's do some comparing, shall we? First one, really obvious, we have a man and a woman. I know profound, but Luke is intentionally trying to get that across to us. We have a man who has a name and a nameless woman. See in verse 40 where he says, Simon, I have, say something, I have something to say to you. But throughout the whole story, he just keeps referring to her as the woman, the woman, the woman. We have a man who is known for his religious superiority and a woman who is known for her prolific sin. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's Luke's just way of saying, pay attention. She has a public sin. Did you notice that this uh, author, Luke, encourages us twice to notice where they are dining? Two times he mentions it's at the Pharisee's house. Look at verse 36. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And then verse 37 and when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house. Luke is emphasizing location here for a reason. He doesn't want you to have any doubt of where this is happening. It's Simon's house. He's a Pharisee. He's supposed to be the host. Here's another comparison. We have a man who invites Jesus for dinner. We have a woman that would never make the guest list. Right? We have a man who's supposed to be there. It's his house, and we have a woman who is introduced by, and behold. Whenever you hear that in the Bible, it's just like drawing attention, okay? It's usually an angel's going to happen, okay, or, or some theophany, and behold, something dramatic. But here we have a woman that's not supposed to be there. We have a man who speaks, and we have a woman who never says a word, but her actions speak a thousand words, don't they? We have a man who wants to inquire who wants to dissect and evaluate this Jesus, but we have a woman who comes to worship Jesus. I wonder why we are here this morning. Both are in the presence of Jesus. One is detached, cool, reserved, guarded. The other has an eruption of love and joy. And we have to ask ourselves this morning, why the difference? What's the difference between these two types of people? We have to notice that they're both in the presence of Jesus, and guess what? This morning... You are in the presence of Jesus. It's not my presence that you're in. It's Christ's presence, and he can do the same thing for you that he did for this woman. We need to learn, first of all here, that God's grace has frequently chosen the lowest of the low, the vilest of the vile. God's grace loves those kinds of people. Think about our Lord's pedigree. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 in your minds. Who are some of the women, women making the Lord's pedigree, Tamar, the shameless Tamar. We also have the prostitute Rahab making the Lord's pedigree. And we also have the unfaithful Bathsheba. All to indicate that God is no respecter of persons. 
Jesus is a friend of sinners. It's who he came for. And he bestows grace on the most unlikely cases to make grace all the more clear. Where sin abounded, Romans 5.20 tells us, grace did abound much more. That's the whole purpose. And so is there someone here this morning who thinks that you are just too far gone? Is there someone here this morning that thinks that maybe they've done one of those sins that just can never be forgiven? Let the Spirit comfort you as you read the Scriptures and it exalts our Savior that it is the worst sinners that often make the best saints. This woman who was forgiven much, loved much. Do you know this morning what the love of God can do for you? He can take your feet out of the miry clay. He can put it on a rock. He can put a new song in your mouth. Have the faith to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Our second point this morning is that because God is no respecter of person, I love this, Jesus defies the values of the larger community. Because God is no respecter of persons, Jesus defies the values of the larger community. It's great to compare these two people. Jesus is a friend of sinners. We learn all about God's grace through this story, but we can't sanitize the context. Simon the Pharisee is the host. It's in his house. And he thinks of hospitality, meals with Jesus, just like we're tempted to think about hospitality. We typically think of hospitality not as welcoming strangers. We think of hospitality as entertaining our friends, having some people over that are from our community that are just like us. We've been trained as hosts to shake people's hands when they walk in, to take their jacket off, to offer them a drink. In the ancient Near East, you would have offered water for someone's feet. You would have offered a kiss to greet them. And you would think that because the dinner party is at Simon's house, that Simon is the host. But is he? Simon does none of those things. He's the host who's not really a host. And instead, the woman is the host who wouldn't even be a guest. Isn't that crazy? Simon is a host who's not a host, and the woman is the host who's not even a guest. Notice how Christ contrasts them, and notice all the personal pronouns, verses 44 through 46. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. By the time I came in, she has not ceased, ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. There are so many applications here, but there's only one that I really want you to notice this morning. Jesus doesn't stop her. Jesus doesn't stop her. He could have said, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, but it's not really appropriate behavior here. Have you ever been in that awkward situation where your kids come in and they jump on you and they love you and they're kissing you, but you have company over and they're just like, you know, Janelle sometimes can just like kiss me a hundred times thinking that she can count to a hundred just with kisses. And it's like, Janelle, not the right time, dear. Okay, I mean, there's company and you can kind of feel 
maybe a little awkward because everybody else is witnessing it. But instead of putting this woman off because of her fleshly sins, here is Jesus, the friend of sinners, exploding all kinds of categories. As a friend of sinners, Jesus is a holy man who gets hugged by a leper. As a friend of sinners, Jesus is a righteous man feasting with sinners. Jesus is a pure man being kissed by a prostitute. How does it explode all of your categories of what is true hospitality? And we have to ask ourselves this question. Why didn't Jesus shrink away from her? With all those kinds of people. Here's the principle this morning. Anyone that can identify Jesus, Jesus can identify with them. Jesus isn't anti-anyone as long as you are not pro-yourself. Who is the one that Jesus rejects here? The one who can't see. The spiritual blindness leads him to spiritual death. Simon cannot see who Jesus... He can't identify him as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, and therefore Christ can't identify with him. But the woman who has all of these morally external sins, and the religious leader who has all these private internal sins of the heart, Christ says, I'm not going to judge based upon that. If you can identify me, I will identify with you. And here's the good news this morning. Christ is happy to identify with her, and he is just as happy to identify with you. If you can say, who is this Christ? With those eyes of faith. So what does that mean for us practically? Here's the application this morning. They're going to be quick, but here they are. Because God is no respecter of persons, practice authentic hospitality. Practice authentic hospitality. What does that mean? First, make certain your guest list is as big as God's. Number one, let's say that again. Make certain that your guest list is as big as God's. Because meals express inclusion, don't they? From grade school all the way up to faith games, we pay attention on who eats with who. Oh, you eat at that table? Oh, you're welcome into that. Oh, you've been over to their house? I used to live at the Parsonage. We've never been asked to come over here before. People notice who gets to eat with who. And this meal that Simon hosts expresses the wrong kind of inclusion. He thinks that he's invited the righteous and that he wants to keep the unrighteous out and down. And so the unrighteous have to have a party crash. They have to crash the party. This meal was designed to keep those kinds of people out, and guess what? It revealed his heart. Don't you just love it how people's actions reveal what's in you? Look at how it reveals his heart in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him, right, the righteous are supposed to be in, the teachers in, oh, I'd love to have another pastor come from out of town and stay at my house, When he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon's whole point in life was to stay away from sinners, keep himself removed. But Jesus uses the power of a meal to raise people up and to bring people in. Did you know that the front door of your house can be the side door of a church? So I just want to ask you this question. When was the last time you ate with someone different than you? When was the last time you ate with somebody different than you? Had them in your house different? Different race? Different economic standing? Unbeliever? 
Is your table a foretaste of God's kingdom? Because when we get to the kingdom, there are people from all around the world at his throne. And like the Pharisee Simon, a community which refuses to welcome is a dying community. May that not be true for Faith Community Bible Church. I know that many of us even are challenged to go out and to do these good deeds and to serve, let's say, the homeless and to go down to, um, to Rise Again or to go down to uh, the, the, the shelter in Concord that, that got closed, Open Hands Resource Center. Many of us serve in the Corbin Center. But you know what? That's still going to them. And I wonder how many cups of coffee at your house it would take to overcome going down to the kitchen once a week. You know what I'm saying by that? When you go down and you serve whoever it is, them, out there, it keeps that distance, doesn't it? It keeps that distinction. I'm middle class, I'm here, I'm coming to serve, and guess what? You can even be patronizing to them if you're not careful. I wonder just how many cups of coffee it would take in your own home to overcome all of those hurdles. Just to welcome them in. Next, make certain your meals are as intimate as God's. Make certain that your meals are as intimate as God's. The enemy of hospitality is our own performance. We're afraid that if we have people over, they're going to see things as they really are. And so hospitality has become a performance art. Really, it's just become entertaining, right? Where we put something on for people, we create the impression that we're the perfect house with the perfect family, and we're putting on the dog. It's an old-timer expression that I've heard around here. But when hospitality is viewed as entertainment, guess what? The house is never ready. There's always something out of place. We can never have them over because it just isn't perfect yet. And I think we're more like Beauty and the Beast with Be Our Guest. Can I just read you some of the lyrics from that? We were singing in the car yesterday as a family, driving to the beach, and this song came on. We have a sing-along playlist on Spotify. Be Our Guest came on. I'm like, this is exactly what I need for my sermon. Be Our... Okay, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> you thought... Yeah, I, oh, I... The gusto was there, but it's not going to happen. Okay. Be Our Guest, Be Our Guest. Put our service to the test. Entertainment. Beef ragu, cheese souffle, pie and pudding on flambe. Well prepared and served with flair, a culinary cabernet. Cabaret? You alone, you're alone and you're scared, but the banquet's all prepared. No one's gloomy or complaining while the flatware's entertaining. We tell jokes, I do tricks with my fellow candlesticks. Be our guest, be our guest, please be our guest. We've lost the intimacy that comes just from having a meal. We now have a hospitality industry where hotels and restaurants perform service if you have enough money. But true hospitality is not just food. True hospitality is that you actually care as a person, not providing a service. And so this is where I think hospitality, when it becomes professionalized, misses it. It's paid duties. It gets people as workers and people as patrons. They're the waiter staff and I'm there to be entertained and I choose from a menu. I get to pick what I want. Even hospitals, root word of hospi 
hospitality, hospitals. There are the paid professional medical staff and those that need the care. And you know what? It keeps those roles divided. There isn't an interchange where you can have grace flow both ways. I'm not saying that it doesn't ever happen, but it's difficult because you are there as a professional to care for them. But how much more have those of us that have had people over, that have welcomed people into our homes, have said what? The blessing was all ours. True hospitality allows grace to flow both ways. The host must be able to receive. The host must be able to receive. Men, just think about this. How many of you have I called for help around my house? And how many times have I offered to reciprocate? And I might say that I don't have the skills to reciprocate. But the idea of, no, I'm all set. I can do this myself. The host must be able to receive, or else it keeps people in those two stations in life. Does that make sense? If I can't return the favor, you're saying that I'm always down here. This woman gets to return to Christ, and he receives it. And then he blesses her. This is what one South African theologian wrote. The pinnacle of lovelessness is not our unwillingness to be a neighbor to somebody, but our unwillingness to allow them to be a neighbor to us. We're all great with wanting to go out there and save the world and be superheroes and be zealous in our good works, but when have you let people serve you and return it? That's hospitality as well. That's true hospitality. Last one here, make certain your grace is as lavish as God's. Make certain your grace is as lavish as God's. This is where the power comes from. Once you have a sense of God's grace in your own life, you can show grace to others. That's why it says here, you who have been forgiven much, love much. But let me show you how Christ promised something that's going to give us power. Go back in your Bible. You have to underline this, Matthew 25. Matthew 25, 31. This is a promise from Jesus, and this should rock your world today. If you don't have a copy of Scripture and you've been dozing off, this is the time to get it out and to mark this down. I don't even care if it's the Pew Bible. Mark it. Dog ear it. Okay? I mean, this is a good thing for you to hear from Christ. What gives the Christian the power to transcend the difference that our meals make and so that our meals are diverse? What gives Christians the power to resist indifference to all the needs that are out there because we are so comfortable with our own materialism, we have our own private house? What gives Christians the power to welcome an inconvenient stranger, not a friend? Hear God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Look at 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. Hospitality is a fruit of what it means to be a Christian, not an option. There is heaven and hell in this passage. Look at what he says in 42. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus, what motivates you to be hospitable is that Jesus promises you that visiting the sick, feeding the hungry, are all personal acts of kindness to Jesus himself. Do it as unto the Lord. This morning, if I was to say, who wants Jesus to be in their house today? Who wants to have Jesus over for lunch? Anybody want, everybody wants Jesus to be a guest in their house. But hear this, the most desired guest comes in the form of the most vulnerable stranger. Oh, I'd love to have Jesus. I'd make room, I'd do my tricks, I'd do my flambe. You want to welcome Christ into your home? Make a room in your house. They call it the Jesus room, an empty bedroom for anybody that needs to come through. All your goods are good for you. Your extras, they're for the poor. They're for the stranger. They're for those that are hurting. The possibility that Christ is coming to us in the guise of a stranger should magnify and intensify and broaden our care for those that are most often overlooked. You could be housing Jesus. Because unto the least of these, you do it to me. So we think about communion. Have you seen throughout this whole sermon that the essence of spiritual death is spiritual blindness. Are you blind, friend, to your sins and your need of grace? Would you know this morning that there is no natural love for God? There is no one here that naturally is born with a love for God. Both Simon and the woman are in debt, and it doesn't matter how much debt you're in if you can't pay it. Both of them are legally in the same spot. So hear this. There is no human being that is so good they don't need grace. And there is no human being that is so bad that they can't find grace. Christians, are you blind to how your meals reveal your heart? Are you blind to how your meals reveal your heart? This woman loved much because she was forgiven much. Would we feed our soul this morning on the love of Christ and remember what he's done for you. Would you throw yourself into service like this woman? She threw herself in personally. She did it. Not, somebody, not through the deacon caring board. She did it. She threw herself in voluntarily, not because the pastor asked her. She threw herself in sacrificially. She broke her alabaster box and said, I'm not using that anymore. It's all for him. May we serve our master not as those of us that are half asleep. Awake our soul to the Savior's love. I'm going to end with Spurgeon. Here's a quote from him. Self-righteousness can never serve in the same fashion as love. 
The self-righteous Pharisee wanted to have Christ over. But that self-righteousness can never serve in the same fashion as love. When that woman loved Christ because of what she had been forgiven, she was all in. Not just the Pharisee who was up here just critiquing Christ. Are you self-righteous this morning? Or do you have a love that looks forward to finding a gazillion ways to serve our Savior through hospitality? I just want to hit home a couple of things. You don't have to have a house to have someone be hospitable in. You know, you can be hospitable by welcoming anyone into your conversation in Palmer Hall. When Christ said that unto the least of these you did it to me, he didn't say a location. He didn't say in your house only. When you make a phone call to a widow or to someone that is shut in that can't get out, that is hospitality. You are giving of yourself and your time just to hear them. When you welcome someone and sit with them in this service and don't let them sit alone, have we not realized that we welcome people and that we are welcoming, but they find out that our church is not welcoming? May that never be. You can do it here. Even if you say, Josh, I don't have a house to do that in. I can't. Do it here. Do it on a Sunday morning. Look for people that you can include in your conversation in Palmer Hall. Look for people to sit with in the sanctuary. Call people on the phone. There is a gazillion ways to think about hospitality as a lifestyle. Those are a few. I'm over. I mean, not just over, but I'm talking like gone. <laughs> second service. You guys want to stick around for second service and do communion then? This is a great service. There's a lot to chew on. There's a lot to praise God for. We want to end with communion, but we want to end with communion in a way that doesn't feel rushed. So I just want to say right now, if you need to go somewhere and you feel like you were rushed, God bless you. We're going to play some music and bow our heads and close our eyes and you can sneak out. Those that don't have a care in the world except for to be here and to feast with Christ and his hospitality, again, it's not because you're more spiritual. Maybe you have a commitment. We invite you to stay. Um, men, come forward. We'll do our communion time. All right? Thanks, Rick. You guys can take a seat. Think about the hospitality of God to welcome us as strangers.